Philippians chapter 5 and verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not the judge? Are you not to judge those inside? So, what do we think of the hair? <laughs> I've had a few comments and I've uh, seen a few heads turn and I gotta say guys, jealousy is not a very good look. Not at all. No, I'm, I'm just joking about that. It, it is probably a little too hip for me. I, I understand. I'm in agreement with that. And when I get home today, I'm thinking that before I'm met with a hug from my wife, it'll likely be the buzz of a razor that, that I hear. But in truth, in my defense, I had this hair before Jay asked me to kind of come in from the bullpen and fill in this week. And so I thought, you know, I should have this, you know, what 30-year-old man wears hair like this? But I was like, you know, I can bring this into the lesson today. So let's talk about it for a second. You've likely formed an opinion in looking at this dome here. And maybe you've based that off a certain stereotype. You know, you'll say, Russ is a wild man. If there's some things that are true about him, one of them is that he rides a motorcycle and doesn't wear a helmet. A second thing that you might think is true is that in his closet, all those shirts, no sleeves on them. Maybe that's a thought. I don't know. Maybe you've advanced past just forming an opinion and it's become a judgment. Okay? You're judging the hawk. You're triggered by it and you can't wait for the conclusion of this sermon so you can confront me and just tell me how ridiculous it looks. To which I would respond, I would meet your energy and rip off one of these stupid sleeves only to reveal a big tattoo that says, only God can judge me. Now, I don't have any tattoos, but I'm sure we all know someone who has a tattoo that says that or, or likes to use that statement that only God can judge us. Is that true? If that's true, what can the church do when the church sees a good tree, one of its members, starting to produce bad fruit? It's another question that just naturally springs up. And so as we go through our lesson today, I hope that we can answer that question. The title of this message is Becoming a CPA. And in a little bit, we'll find out what a CPA is. This message, I think, is a great one because... It's an in-house message. Oftentimes, we'll, we'll have a message about going out into the world, evangelism. And that's great. We have to do that. But what we're going to talk about today is, is right here, right within the church. And it's a subject that I think oftentimes can be misunderstood. So we're hopeful that by the end of it, we'll have a little more clarity on the matter. Because that's our goal. We want to be clear. We want to understand God's word so that we can be a holy and a pure church. We want to be a loving and functioning body. Now, I like what Vince did a few weeks ago when he was up here. He kind of opened up with a prayer. And if you join me, I'd like to do that now as well. Let's bow. Father in heaven, we are thankful. We are thankful for so much that you provided for us. God, we're thankful that you created the church. We understand what a blessing that is, God. But help us to really, really dig deep now and give us the wisdom to just appreciate that all the more. As is every time, Father, I ask that if there is anything that I say today that is not of your will, that is not of your truth, that those things be quickly forgotten. But the things that are everlasting, 
your words. May we meditate on those, and may we take those away from today. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Only God can judge me. That thought. We have lots of verses in the Bible that seem to support this, right? Matthew 7 and Luke 6. They both talk about the speck of sawdust in your eye versus the plank in mine. And the hypocrisy of judging someone else's sins while devaluing or ignoring our own completely. How about the woman in adultery? You can pick up your stone if you're perfect. You can even throw it. But what happens there? No one is able to cast anything against her. Because, as Romans 3.23 says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you add three chapters exactly to that, you get to Romans 6.23, which says that we are all in line to receive the same wage for that sin. That wage being death. So it really sounds like there is no one qualified to judge. And to that I would agree. I think it does mean that. I think that hat is not a one-size-fits-all, but a one-size-fits-one. And it's God's head that it fits. We read in Scripture often that we are going to have to give account, good or bad, for our lives here on earth, and we give it to Him. He is the one who set the standard. He has not transgressed it in any way, the only one who hasn't. So He's the only one. He's the only one who can dole out perfect justice, perfect righteousness. Bang the gavel. The case is closed. I told you I had limited time to prepare for this, so that's it for today, folks. It's great to see you all again. That's what I would say if Paul, in what man has noted as chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, hadn't written this. So we have to take a little bit of time to look at it. The text for today, 1 Corinthians 5. Let's start it off. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Okay, that's pretty out there. A man is sleeping with what is likely his stepmother. Otherwise, I think it would have said it was his mother. But either way, it's an incestuous relationship. And it's not only prohibited by Scripture. You go through Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you'll find the ruling against this. But even the Romans... Even the secular world realized that this was taboo, that this kind of behavior, getting down with a family member in that way, that was not to happen. Okay? But I guess if it was going to happen anywhere, it might as well have been in Corinth. I'm going to talk a little bit about Corinth. It was a rich city, rich in wealth, but also rich in sin. Archaeological digs have found lots of shrines and temples to pagan gods. It's just not a good place. When you drove into Corinth, the sign might as well said, like, sexual activity. You know, that is, that's what we're all about here. Welcome to that. There's a slang word in the Greek, which I cannot pronounce, so I will not try, that meant, basically, it was a derogatory term. So say you see someone caught in sin, you go up to them and say, oh, you are a Corinthian. You heathen, basically. It wasn't an endearing thing to necessarily be thought of as a Corinthian. The word in the original language for sexual immorality here is the word porneia. And you can probably guess which modern word is derivative from that. But that word was used to describe any unlawful sexual act, which is basically any sexual act outside the bond of marriage between a man and a wife. It's kind of got a wide range. And so that's what Paul is up against here. And he's saying, you know, even the pagans are in agreement that this should not happen. What are, what are you guys doing? So he continues on. He says, and you're proud of it. Not just that you're tolerant of it, but you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Paul is scratching his head here. 
Why are you behaving the opposite of how you should be? What are you doing here? You're, you're proud of it. You're actually puffed up. Your chest is out saying, oh, look, we, we hang out with this guy. He's part of our church. Paul says that your morality compass is it's not only broken, it's completely gone. You'd be better off using the world's compass. You'd be closer to the right path. But you're well off it. He continues on. He says, for my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Paul says that I'm not there physically, but I can see that this is wrong. And if you're not going to call it for what it is, then I'm going to do it. Passing judgment. But hold on. The Corinthians must have been reading this and, and they see those other scriptures that some of those we just reference and they'll say, ha Paul, ah, sorry, buddy. This is a no judgment zone, right? That's God's job. That's not your job. Let the man and his mom or wife, whatever he wants to call her, let them hang out with us. That's the loving thing to do. Paul, you spend a whole chapter on love coming up. You're confusing us here by writing this here. It seems contradictory. It seems hypocritical to what, you, what else you write in these letters to us. That might have been the Corinthians' question. Well, we, we have questions too. We can ask, is the church powerless in this regard? Because we can't judge? Is it, is it only Paul that is allowed to because he's, he's the big apostle that he can call out sinful behavior? This seems contradictory to a lot of things that, that we looked at regarding judgment so far. But now here I want to suggest something. And if it wasn't enough that this haircut bothered you to confront me after, maybe something I say here will, which hopefully will, will, will bring up a nice conversation. I'd, I'd be open to it. But I think, I think Paul is, is suggesting something here. I believe what he's doing is he's holding the immoral man. It doesn't mention the woman, the stepmother. So it's likely that she was an unbeliever or not part of the church. But what Paul is doing, he is holding the immoral man as well as the church body itself accountable. He's holding them accountable. Okay? And so I feel it looks at looking at those two words, judgment versus accountability, and seeing the similarities and differences between it. Now, I hope we'll agree that when we talk, think about judging someone, there's a certain connotation to that word. There's a lot of finality to that word judgment, right? Uh, just a conclusion. And an end. We think of a court scene. What's the judge's job? In the end, the evidence is presented. The jury goes away. Render it. But he's the one who bangs the gavel and makes the final call and sets the sentence. He renders the verdict. Delivers the conclusion. Guilty or not. And so what I think Jesus and the other biblical authors mean when they're not wanting us to judge others, like we talked about, is that they do not want us to elevate ourselves to the position of God, where we are the one pronouncing that condemnation on someone else. We're not elevating ourselves while lowering someone else, pretending that we are somehow sinless in the matter. But to hold someone accountable, and so that's judgment, right? To hold someone accountable, it's got a little bit of a warmer nature to it. And I really like that that. Part of the saying where it says, I'll hold you accountable. You're holding someone. That idea of holding, of reaching out your hand and grasping at something. Because you don't want it to get away. You don't want that person to end up in jail. You don't want that person to end up worse in hell. You want to nip this in the bud. You want to see reconciliation when someone has strayed from the path. Your goal is not to see them humiliated 
embarrassed or demerited in any way. No, but to see them restored. And so I, I, I created this, and you can probably tell that. <laughs> but this idea of the judge looking down, and, and it's, it's almost in a, an aspect of, of non-action versus action as well. Think about judging someone. You don't actually have to tell them that they're judging them. You can just make up that decision. Oh, I'm not going to associate with you anymore. I've made that judgment. There's no, you don't actually have to tell them that you've judged them. But in accountability, there's no accountability without that engagement. If I'm going to hold someone accountable, that involves me going up to them and saying, hey, this is the path you're, you're walking right now. What, what's going on in your life? How come this is happening? You know, you're, you're part of the church here, and, and this is an obvious sin. So there's that engagement with the sinful person because they are a brother and sister in Christ, and we want what is best for their spiritual health. So let's continue through the rest of this chapter. Let's see what Paul is doing here. Is it, is it just cold, hard judgment? Or is he looking for some accountability from the Corinthian church? Verses 4 and 5 say, When you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit might be... That's blurred. I imagine that says that his spirit can roast eternally over never-ending flame. That's kind of the direction this is going. I think, I think that's probably what it says there. And, and verse 13, the last verse in this chapter, kind of echoes that. It says, expel the wicked person from among you. Get them, get them out of here. So if we're asking ourselves, is this Paul judging or, or lovingly holding accountable? I would say he's judging big time. I, that, that's a case closed. Easy call. Loveless Paul, or should we say Saul, again after Christians, taking them out of the church and even out of the world in this case, it looks like. Destruction of the flesh. Now, scholars contend what is actually meant by the destruction of the flesh. It's kind of hard to pin down. Was it literal that there would be hardships, disease, even physical death? Or is this flesh meant to be our sinful nature, our passions, our desire, those things that we are to crucify when we become part of Christ? Galatians 5.24 discusses that. And it seems harsh to throw someone out, to throw them away, back to the world. But when we look at the teaching throughout the Bible, it actually is in line with it. It's in line with something that Jesus says in Matthew 18. He says, if your brother or sister sins, we are to go to them individually. If that doesn't work, if there's no repentance of that, then we bring a few more and go to them. If that doesn't work, it goes up the chain. The church is involved. It's all with the ideal of restoration and bringing someone back to repentance. But it says that if that cannot happen, if you've reached that third strike there, kind of, then that person is to be treated as a tax collector, to be treated as a pagan, a heathen. But hold on, I'm getting the sleep out of my eyes, and it's probably going into yours as I'm up here. <laughs> but this blurriness is, is, is revealing itself now. Whoa. It says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Ah, this doesn't sound a little more like accountability from Paul here. His motives, not to see this person gone forever and banished to hell for eternity, no. But that this form of discipline, be it harsh, is actually meant to result in salvation, which is the greatest thing you can want for somebody. This restoration, this is the point, this is the fruit, if you will, of accountability. Paul wrote a few times to the Corinthians, I believe three at least, actually. We'll get to that. 
But some believe that there's a situation that he wrote about in 2 Corinthians 2 that was actually in reference back to this situation that we're talking about today. But whether it is or not, it is true. And it helps describe and show Paul's heart to us as well. In 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 8, it says, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. This looks like a situation where someone was dealt that really extreme form of accountability where they wouldn't admit to their sins, they wouldn't repent, they kept living in their sinful way, and so they had to be pushed to the outside for a bit. But it shows that excessive sorrow, which is telling of repentance, and we're not to keep them on the outside, but to welcome them back in, to reaffirm our love for them. Does keeping someone accountable seem kind of tough? Does it seem like a lot of work? Is it easier to just judge and, and be done? See someone with a little sin, you look and say, oh, that's going to take up too much time. I'm, I'm just going to let it slide. Well, Paul doesn't think that's a good idea. He's actually quite serious here. Not only about the danger to the spiritual health of the immoral person that's involved in it, the one person involved in it, but he's actually concerned about the whole, the body itself, the church, and what can happen. Back to our text, it says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the... Keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We're kind of going back into the Old Testament here, and you can read about it in Exodus 12 and a few other places. But when preparing for the Passover feast, the Israelites, they would purge their house for leaven. They would look for it and they would get it out of their dwelling because they did not want even the slightest chance for this leaven to get into this special bread that they were making to commemorate the Passover. They wanted no chance of it. Now, leaven is used in some other passages, and it's used positively. Is that a word? It's used in a positive manner <laughs> to describe the kingdom of heaven and, and that growth. But here we see, we see the negative part of it, that a little bit of sin can start small, and if it's left unchecked, it'll, it'll make its way into the church. And to borrow a line from what Paul says to Timothy in his second letter to him, it will spread like gangrene. It will spread like a cancer. And so we're really seeing Paul's heart here, not only for the man, but for the church itself. The next verses in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, I'm not going to read them, but I'm just going to kind of clarify them a little bit here. What Paul's doing in, in writing this, he says that there's, in his previous letter, in a letter, and that's why I say before that Paul would have written probably more than two times to 1 Corinthians. So what we're reading now is probably First or 2 Corinthians, and then the other one is 3, but, but I digress. But in a previous letter, he stated something to them, and I think they got it mixed up a bit. He's saying that there are sexually immoral people in the world, certainly, but he's saying not to avoid them completely. To do that, you'd have to be dead. Right? Because yes, we are the church and we all are here together. But from here we go out into the world. We work with non-believers. We, we have friends who are, who are non-believers. So Paul's saying that no, you're not to avoid those people. If you were, how would you ever evangelize? The, the world is the main clientele of the church. So he's not saying that. 
in those two verses there. It would probably be quicker just to read it, but I wanted to break it down a little bit if I could. 1 Corinthians 5.11 It says, But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. The use of the word brother and sister denotes that Paul, he's talking to the church here. Okay, We're talking in-house. And he lists a bunch of other potential sins that can be in the church. There's not only sexual immorality. There's all kinds of other things. And we may call them by different names nowadays. But it's funny that sin doesn't seem to ever go out of style. And I imagine until Christ returns, we will be, be left dealing with it. Now is a good time, I think, to clarify something regarding Paul's instruction about how the church is to conduct itself in light of a situation like the one we're talking about here today. And I believe that the original language lends itself nicely here. It says it is actually reported that there is sexually immoral, sexual immorality among you. That a man is sleeping. That is a present tense verb, so that means that it is ongoing. It's, it's not a shot to the past. It's something that was still happening. He has his father's wife at this time. Not that he had her and repented and came around, but no, he's still engaged in it. And if this man, the immoral man, if he claims the name of Christian, he should know better, right? Yet he appears unwilling to give up his sin. And if anyone has ever been involved in sexual sin, you you might agree that that is one of the hardest ones to shake. But I digress. We also see the present tense here in 1 Corinthians 5.11, verse that we're looking at now. He said, if anyone who claims to be a brother... So this person is, is not done with Christianity, because otherwise, I mean, if you go after them, it's, they won't really care. But they're claiming to be a Christian still, but they're still engaged. There still are, they is, sexually immoral still, as we see the present tense again. The church is not concerned about your past. Before you became a Christian... You didn't have to sit down in front of a large council and lay out all of your sins and have them vetted against you, nor are they kept for the future to be ammo for, for you, to, to knock you down if you step out of line. If you have put on Christ, Christ has paid your penalty. So therefore, what we're talking about today is not things committed in the past, but this is accountability for the unrepentant Christian who continues to engage in wrongdoing. Okay, it's not uh, say I'm out for a jog. Uh, actually, let's make the story more realistic. I'm out for a walk, and I walk past, <laughs> I walk past uh, Oshoke's house, and I see him coming out, and he's he's carrying the garbage. And I notice that he's got some cardboard in there, and I say, Hey, Oshoke, and he says, Hey, and and I see him shove all that, including the the recycling, right into the trash. And I say, okay, and I keep walking, and I whip out my phone, and I say, get me Gary King. And I say, Gary just ran into our brother Oshoke, and man, he's being immoral. He put that recycling right in the trash. <laughs> Call Billy and the boys, then I'll get in the bushes here and see what else I can see him doing. You know, that's, that's not the, the idea here. If, if there's a, a mistake made, we're, we're all going to sin, we understand that, but this is... This situation is someone unrepentant who knows that they are involved in sin and yet are unwilling to leave it behind. 
There's also something else I think is valuable to look at and lends itself to the argument that Paul is playing accountant. Is that the term maybe we can use for someone who holds someone accountable? He's playing accountant as compared to judge. Now, in verse 3, the word judge is actually used. It is that word. One of our finest Greek lexicons, labeled the B-Dag, defines this word as a coming to a conclusion after a cognitive process. Now, there's a few different definitions for it, but that is the one that, that they say applies in this situation. And don't you hate it when you look up a word in the dictionary and then you need to look up the word that was in the definition? Cognitive. I, I wanted to look that up, so I did. Coming to a conclusion after a cognitive process. And a cognitive process is the mental action or process of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experience, and the senses. So the act of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experience, and the senses. I think this definition really showcases the reason that cold, uninformed judgment has no place in the church, but that for accountability, relationships are key. And relationships is kind of the background message here. That is the theme. Uh, Miles started it off last week talking about building healthy relationships and that deep love that is necessary. And relationships are so important in accountability. I think it makes all the difference. We've heard this. That was pretty, what I just talked about there, pretty bookish, right? So let, let's use an analogy. And funny enough, we're going to use a book in the analogy as well. But you've heard, don't judge a book by its cover, right? We've heard this. Why, why do we hear that? Well, often our judgments lack total information. And so therefore, a lot of the time, our judgments can be false. And here is why having a relationship, getting to know the actual pages of someone's book, is so vital. To use the book analogy, it'll help both parties involved in that bond. See, when we have rapport with someone, when we have friendship, we have a much higher chance of dealing with actual true information, right? Because we know each other. That's the benefit of the relationship. If I know Tai Wu, if I'm buddies with him, I'm going to know what's true in his life, what's going on with him. If I don't, then I can speculate all kinds of things. But if we're, if we're buddies, and we're buddies... We learn, right? We struggle together. We help each other. The goal is, ideally, is that relationships get to a point where we can confess sins to one another. Because the truth is, it is harder to judge someone who we are in a relationship with compared to someone who we don't know. And it's not always easy. It's not, that doesn't mean it's easy just because we have a relationship with someone. In some ways, it, it can be harder. Because addressing a brother or sister in a conversation, is not going to be easy. Not easy for both parties to hear, the one who is involved in sin and the one who is going to hold them accountable. Proverbs 27 says something here, and I like it. It says five and six, but I only put six. Like I said, I was rushed. <laughs> Proverbs five and six says this. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Wounds from a friend. It might not be easy what they're there to tell you, but it's coming from a place of love. It's because they care for you and they can be trusted. And if we're going to be a CPA, we need to be a church of relationship. Finally, we can reveal the title. Maybe you've guessed it already. It's pretty simple. 
all we're interested in doing is becoming a church practicing accountability. That's it. And it segues us nicely into the application part of this message. So far, we've looked at accountability to the extreme, right? The, the tough love, the chastisement to win you back, the discipline to get you back on track kind of accountability. But unlike judgment, which usually is a final thing, kind of a, a hard line stance, and that's it, conclusion, accountability has a wonderful range to it. Think of your goals in life. Hopeful that one of them is, is to grow in your faith day by day, year by year. That's a great goal to have. But we have other goals as well. Maybe one of our goals is physical activity, physical health. And maybe that's a good one to put together against spiritual health. So let's use physical for the example. Have you ever tried to improve it by doing different things, working with your diet, you know, going to a gym? There's a survey by the Association for Talent Development regarding the probabilities of completing a goal by action. And I think it's fairly telling. The first one is this. Your probability to reach your goal just by having the idea of how you're going to reach it already gets you 10% of the way there. If you make that internal choice that, yes, I'm going to pursue this, quarter of the way there to reaching your goal. Once you've started to decide how you're going to do it, even closer. Planning, taking the time to say, this is, this is the diet I'm going to follow. This is the times I'm going to go to the gym. 50% chance of completing your goal. Once you tell someone else about it, now you're on the right side of positivity here. You're, you're almost there. But look what happens when you bring someone else into it and ask them to hold you accountable. Someone to call you when you say, no, I'm not going to the gym today, and your hand's in the cookie jar here and in the chip pile there. Someone to say, come on. You're, you're, doing, you're doing so good. You're so close. Keep at it. When we have someone to hold us accountable, the chances of reaching our goal goes up to 95%. That's a pretty good thing. That's not leaving a lot to be desired. Just by involving another person in our walk or our run to improve our physical health. To stop the hanger moments. I give a shout out to my birds out there. Some of you know who you are. We have a, a little accountability group here. And, and they're not doing a very good job of holding me accountable so far. So this is a, this is a call out to them. But it's a great thing. It's, it's a motivational thing. It's an excellent thing. And I'm really lucky to be, to be a part of that group. But let's go back here. That was the physical. Let's go to the spiritual health. If you want to shed that heavy sin, get yourself an accountability partner. Iron sharpens iron, Proverbs say. We've got to find ourselves, someone, and deepen that relationship to the point where we can share, we can confess our sins to one another, as James and John both state in their respective epistles. Are you spiritually lazy? Reach out to a brother or sister and allow them to be your motivator, to keep on you about it. The Bible talks a lot about encouragement, about building one another up. The church itself is to be the accountability partner. I'm looking out at it. It's filled with people. I could close my eyes and point, and that should be someone that can help keep me accountable. So what does the church do when it sees someone weighed down by sin to kind of come around full circle? Do they heap judgments on someone who's already obviously dealing with a lot? 
It's Paul again in Galatians 6. He says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Help that person out. We hold each other accountable with love, with grace, not a holier than thou, where are you down there, I can't see you, kind of attitude. Because as accountability does involve other people, it is also an individual thing. For we are all accountable to ourselves. We are accountable to God. It's individual as well as collective. Now, if there was a modern-day Corinth, it might be the city of sin, Las Vegas. There's a gentleman who plays, or used to play, he's actually been traded since, Max Pacioretty, some of you will recognize him, former Montreal Canadian. He had a great quote about two weeks ago about playing in Las Vegas. When he got traded there, he said that there was a total lack of accountability. He shared with his teammates after they shockingly missed the postseason this year that if what happened in Las Vegas happened in Montreal, half the city would be on fire. But in Vegas, there was nobody holding them accountable. This is one of his quotes, talking about how he realized that he had to hold himself to a higher standard. He says this, in talking to his teammates. We've got to police this thing better amongst each other. I don't want to say it was a country club, but you have no one from the outside holding you accountable. You have no one from the outside holding you accountable. Do we see the similarities to the church? Because the church, the church is our team. That's our squad. And there's no one from the outside is going to come and help us out. It's up to us from within to hold each other accountable with a gentle yet firm hand. In doing this, we use God's standard, right? We don't use our own. We don't inject ourselves into it. We take what the Word has to say and go from there. A mature Christian will actually welcome being held accountable. They'll recognize the bravery, the courage that takes to engage in that situation with someone. Because it's not easy to bring up difficult matters. And that's the person you want. Someone who will come to you and rebuke you. That's the kind of person you want in your corner. They have your back. They want to see what's best for you. I've seen Tyler Laycock here. He might be helping out with the kids in the back now. What good is it if I walk past Tyler and I wave and say hi and he sees there's a little bit of blood trickling out of my ear and he says nothing about it? Now, it wouldn't take a doctor to diagnose that. But if you go to the doctor and your scan comes up and it's not good, there's something that needs to be done. And he just says, well, have a nice day. We'll see you in six months. Maybe. You know, what good, what good is that? That doctor is not your friend in that situation. They don't want what is best for you. No, the doctor tells you because they want to restore you to health. The goal of the church is to, is to have a healthy group individually and collectively. It's accountability. And it's been around since the beginning. God gives Adam and Eve a chance right in Genesis 3 to account for eating the fruit. And since he hasn't sent his son back, we're to continue to practice this accountability. I hope we see that to just judge someone, it takes no love, it takes no courage, and it takes no time. But to hold someone accountable, to show them your love, takes great courage 
Just like becoming a certified public accountant, which is maybe what some of you thought CPA stood for. Sorry for those who are here thinking that that's what they were learning. (laughs) But just like becoming a certified public accountant takes time and effort, it takes time and effort to become a church that is practicing, a church that is promoting accountability. Whether it's a serious case such as recorded in 1 Corinthians 5, or just a few friends who are leaning on one another to keep to the narrow path, the church needs to keep its members accountable. Paul says as much in verse 12 when he asks two rhetorical questions. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? So let's work together. Let's form relationships, new ones. Let's deepen previous ones. So we can share our struggles with one another. That we can share our successes. And when we see a brother or sister entangled in sin, that we can lovingly go to them and settle the account in a biblical way. The closing song selected today is a great one, and it's applicable in so many situations. Instruments of your peace. Certainly we understand that an an instrument that can't make a sound is not a lot of use. So let's put ourselves in the position that as a church, that when we need to make a sound, when we need to talk to a brother or sister, that we can make that sound, but that we can do it with a redemptive spirit, a spirit that elevates peace and harmony, and one that cements unbreakable relationships, where accountability is not only expected, but encouraged. Thank you very much again for your time.